0: Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Sorry for the long absence. November was completely crazy. But I'm back, and I have a case I found very fascinating. As usual, this episode is brought to you by my lovely patrons. You guys are the best. I'll be sending something out for Christmas. I'm not sure what yet. And if you want to get in on that, simply click the link in the show notes and become a patron. Everyone is super appreciated. I do have a patron episode in the works, so that'll be out sometime in the next year. (laughs) And I have another episode I'm hoping to get out this month, so I'm trying to get back on track. But for now, I have this case for you, which I found to be pretty creepy. This is the murder of Lawrence Zimmerman and Paul Hare. Now, I watch a lot of horror movies, they're kind of like my main movie jam, and there's a very classic trope, very prevalent in the 70s and 80s, of an escaped prisoner busting out of jail or prison, or even a mental institution, and going on a killing spree. Except for the very notable exception of Ted Bundy, and likely a few others here and there, it seems as though it's more likely for an escapee to want to lay low instead of drawing attention to themselves with a pile of dead bodies. I've watched a lot of 80s slasher movies, far more than any person really needs to, and it seems that in least half of them, there's a murderer on the loose from some type of facility and decides to take out his murderous aggressions on a batch of sorority sisters. Now, maybe they were inspired by Ted Bundy, and maybe he in turn was inspired by the OG modern slasher, Black Christmas. It's kind of a chicken and the egg scenario, but where was I? My point is that it's a rare event for someone to escape from a correctional facility, and among that number, rarer still for the escapee to immediately go out and commit murder. But there are cases where it has happened, and this case is one of them. Today's case is a historical crime, which I find fascinating, but also kind of frustrating because, unless they're one of the few that continue to be discussed decades later, it can be incredibly hard to find good information on the crime and people involved. This case is not well known at all. I had actually never heard of it until I read a short entry on it in a book called Cold Crimes by Tom Brennan. It's a compilation of many short case overviews focusing on the investigation involved taking place in Alaska. That's my primary source for this episode. It's an entertaining and quick read, though I must warn you that the author does not go very in-depth on any of the cases, even those that have a massive amount of information involved. Since the story takes place 49 years ago, in August 1971, let's hop in the Wayback Machine and I'll give you some context for this case. In 1971, Alaska had a population right around 315,000 people, which is about 368,000 less than it has now. Anchorage was the biggest city with 48,000 people, and was more than triple the size of the next largest city. Alaska as a whole was right at the beginning of a massive population boom that went hand-in-hand hand with the building of the Alaskan pipeline. Other big news events that happened in Alaska in '71 include the Alaskan Native Land Settlement Act and Alaska's deadliest plane crash to this date, both of which I'll be discussing in future episodes. Relevant to my interests, 1971 was the year Led Zeppelin released their fourth album, one of my all-time favorites. And in absolutely shocking world news that I learned today, women were finally granted the right to vote in Switzerland in 1971. I'm blown away by that. Well, I hope you enjoyed that trip in the Wayback Machine. I'll have you know I had to read census information for you, so I hope you appreciated it. When 44-year-old Lawrence Zimmerman and 11-year-old Paul Hare went missing in August of 1971, law enforcement and the general public were all baffled. It would be weeks before there were any answers, and in that time frame, there were probably a lot of wild speculation going on. Some theories more likely than others, but none that seemed to make much sense, because not only had the two seemingly disappeared into a black hole, but the vehicle they'd been driving in seemed to have gone along for the ride. Those that form opinions based on Occam's razor likely may have thought that the 44-year-old man had obviously abducted the child, and somehow made a getaway without being spotted. And eventually, law enforcement would contact Canadian Border Patrol to be on the lookout for Zimmerman and Hare. But the simplest and most likely answer is not always the case. It all began on August 14, 1971. Zimmerman and his boss at Elmendorf Air Force Base, Jerry Hare, planned to run an errand to deliver supplies to a lodge located at Gunsight Mountain, which is around 100 miles northeast of Anchorage. Zimmerman was friends with some employees at the lodge and was doing this trip as a favor to them. It would be around a a three-and-a-half to four-hour drive through a sparsely populated area surrounded by absolutely gorgeous mountain scenery. So who wouldn't want to take a break out of a regular workday to go have that kind of road trip? The plan was to head out mid-morning and be back that afternoon. But as it turns out, Jerry Hare found himself too occupied at work to take a break for the drive. But as the plan involved delivering a large amount of supplies, including big and heavy items, Jerry decided to volunteer his 11-year-old son, Paul, to accompany Lawrence on the trip and help him offload the delivery when they arrived. It was a favor for a friend that he would soon come to regret. And so, Lawrence left his workplace at Elmendorf, just north of Anchorage, driving his 1970 Toyota Land Cruiser, and headed north on Glen Highway to pick up Paul at the Hare household in Chugiak, Alaska, which is a village about 20 miles up the highway. The pair were last seen by Paul's stepmother as he headed down the road with his dad's friend and trusted employee. Three hours passed, then four. As time ticked on and afternoon was dragging towards evening, the stepmother, whose name I could not find anywhere, began to get worried. To ease some of her anxiety, she decided to call the lodge they were headed to and find out what time the pair had left to head back south. To her utter horror, she was told by the employees there that Zimmerman and the planned delivery had yet to arrive. By the time she learned this, it had been over seven hours, since the pair had left on an errand that should have taken no longer than four to five at the very most. She quickly contacted her husband, Jerry, and the two of them reported Lawrence and Paul as missing persons. Perhaps because there was a child involved, their disappearance was actually taken seriously pretty quickly. While the Hares began a long, gut-wrenching drive up the highway, on a doomed search mission, a rainstorm began that would only continue to ramp up in intensity over the next few days. Eventually it got so bad that surrounding waterways were flooding and traveling by car became very dangerous. But law enforcement and volunteers from all walks of civilian life tried to push through the terrible weather and they searched, prowling the nearly 100 miles, stretching from Chugiak to the Lodge via air, land, and water. That particular stretch of road crosses over at least two large rivers and through countless winding mountain passes. I know that personally one of my scariest driving experiences ever was making my way through those twisty mountain peaks on a very foggy night. And it seems completely believable that the two may have had an accident and gone off the road. Over the next couple of days, more and more people continued to join the hunt. But even with hundreds of volunteers absolutely scouring the region and stopping to question people at lodges and restaurants along the way, the search turned up absolutely no answers. After about a week of searching with no results, law enforcement now began to consider the most obvious theory that Zimmerman may have kidnapped the boy. This was despite the fact that to everyone who knew him, he was an exemplary human being, had no criminal record, and was married with a child of his own. But of course, law enforcement had to investigate the most obvious theories before anything else. And any good investigator knows that not having a criminal record doesn't necessarily rule someone out for committing a crime later in life. They started to think that Zimmerman may have taken the boy across the Canadian border, which would have been only about six hours further of driving beyond their original destination. Now Canadian Border Patrol, the RCMP, and the FBI were involved and a warrant was sent out for Zimmerman's arrest for kidnapping. After 15 days of fruitless searching and investigation, any leads into the disappearance had mostly dried up when a grim discovery was made. Within just a few miles of Gunsight Lodge, a hiker was walking on a trail at a place called Jackass Creek. While walking, he spotted a body. Law enforcement was, of course, alerted, and when they got to the scene, they had the sad realization that they had found the body of 11-year-old Paul Hare. He had been beaten in the head and drowned, then dumped just a few hundred yards from the main road. Once again, a massive search ensued looking for the body of Zimmerman and any evidence that may have been left in the area. Renowned state trooper Walter Gilmore was one of a handful of officers that spent endless hours trudging through the cold, wet forest, refusing to give up until they had answers. Finally, right near the junction of Jackass Creek and the Matanuska River, They found the body of Zimmerman beneath a pile of debris. Their theories now flew out the window at this discovery. An autopsy revealed that Zimmerman and Paul had both died the same way. Blunt force head injuries followed by drowning. It seemed to hint at some sort of off-road vehicle accident, even though the bodies were located fairly far apart. There had been a lot of flooding in the area, which could have accounted for that. But law enforcement was bothered by the fact that the the Toyota was nowhere to be seen. While they were mulling over the possibilities, one officer broached the idea that maybe the pair had picked up a hitchhiker that had murdered them and stolen the vehicle. It wasn't exactly the best lead, but they felt they had to investigate it anyways. And much to their surprise, when they called around to various correctional facilities in the area, they found that a short-term inmate at Palmer Adult Camp had simply walked off the grounds one day, which happened to be the same day Zimmerman and Hare had disappeared. Soon thereafter, Zimmerman's brother came forward with some evidence he had found on the scene while searching for his brother. It was a blood-stained rock found in the same area as the bodies, and it had some black hairs on it, which did not match either Zimmerman or Hare. So who was this missing inmate? He was 21-year-old Willis Mayo, and he had been sentenced to the minimum security facility for a few months crimes involving theft and drugs. He also had black hair. The offenses that had gotten him incarcerated that time were just the latest on a long rap sheet. He had been in and out of correctional facilities for years, and he had a history of severe mental illness. Now, let me be clear when I say that it's far more likely for someone that suffers from mental illness to be the victim of a violent crime than to be the perpetrator. And I absolutely hate demonization of mental illness sufferers. However, there are definitely cases where someone with mental illness becomes a violent criminal. And as is often the case, there are likely other factors such as drug and alcohol abuse. Not long after law enforcement heard about the escapee, 300 miles north in the city of Fairbanks, An abandoned vehicle was reported on a residential road. Anchorage law enforcement quickly headed to Fairbanks and realized right away that this was the missing Toyota Land Cruiser. And a local police officer heard about the discovery, and he came forward with a story. He remembered that on the same day Zimmerman and Hare had gone missing, He had actually assisted a man who was driving a Toyota Land Cruiser who had run out of gas. The officer had helped the man get a can of gasoline to bring back to the vehicle. The encounter was forgettable, and there was nothing about the man that had been particularly remarkable. But when he was shown a batch of photos, including one of Willis Mayo, he quickly fingered the escaped prisoner as the man he had helped that day. Gilmore, who was a sergeant at the time, and would end up retiring as a major, was leading this investigation. And once it became clear who the suspect was, a warrant was issued for his arrest for two counts of first-degree murder and felony joyriding. Which to me sounds somewhat innocuous in comparison with other options. Gilmore knew at this point that they were many, many days behind Mayo and he had likely already left the state. Since it was 1971 and record keeping and security measures on airplanes were incredibly lax by today's standards, law enforcement was unable to figure out when Mayo had left the state or where he may have gone. The National Crime Information Center, or NCIC, had been created just four years prior to be a national database for law enforcement to have the ability to upload and access crime data from across the country. While the computers they were using were likely large and clunky and horribly slow, they were still able to access and enter info, which could be seen by any law enforcement officer in the U.S., And of course, this process was much faster than having to make a bunch of phone calls or mass mail wanted posters. As an aside, I actually learned while researching this that the first personal computer was created in 1971, which is a lot earlier than I would have guessed. It was called the Kinback One, which sounds like a cartoon robot. (laughs) So law enforcement did some digging and they learned that Mayo's mother lived in Portland, Oregon, which those of us in Alaska have nicknamed Alaska's biggest city. The mother revealed that Mayo had stopped by to visit her days earlier, but was no longer there. And again, it seemed that law enforcement had no leads to go on. And while I'd love to say that Mayo's arrest was the result of incredible investigative prowess on the part of Alaska law enforcement. Much like the three arrests of the previously mentioned Bundy, Mayo would be captured as the result of a patrol officer being in the right place at the right time and doing his job well. In Bellingham, Washington, a policeman on a routine patrol pulled over a car full of five people for a traffic violation. He looked up the names of everyone inside and thanks to Mayo's warrant information being in the NCIC, he quickly realized he had just found a fugitive and double murder suspect. Mayo was immediately arrested and booked in a Bellingham jail. Now for another quick digression, but I promise you it's interesting, and it does not involve census info. (laughs) For a city that had only 45,000 people as of 1980, Bellingham has many connections to infamous killers, especially from the 1970s. In the third Ted Bundy reference this episode, three years after Mayo was arrested in Bellingham, Ted went to college there at Western Washington University. During his time there, he frequented a bar called the Waterfront Tavern. And just five years later, another regular at that same tavern would be arrested for the murders of two Bellingham women. Law enforcement and the world would soon learn that the man arrested was actually half of the duo responsible for the notorious hillside strangler murders in Los Angeles, Kenneth Bianchi. Then, over two decades later in 2002, the owner of the tavern was utterly shocked when she watched the news and saw that another regular from a few years prior had been arrested in relation to the D.C. sniper attacks. John Allen Muhammad had even applied for a job at the tavern, but they weren't hiring. And by the way, the tavern still exists, so you can go there if you're into that sort of thing. But back to the case. So while in a Bellingham... While in a (laughs) Bellingham jail awaiting extradition to Alaska, Mayo was visited by Sergeant Gilmore, and to him, he told his version of what had happened. He said that after he had escaped the detention facility in Palmer, he decided to try and hitch a ride, and that's when Zimmerman and Hare pulled up in the, the Toyota Land Cruiser and offered him a lift. He said that he and Zimmerman chatted quite a bit, and that Zimmerman was very friendly and talked a lot about his hobby of rock hounding, which is a, an interesting term for collecting rocks and minerals, which was his big passion in life. As they were driving and getting closer to the destination of Gunsight Lodge, where Mayo would be forced to hitchhike again, he asked Zimmerman to pull over so he could go pee in the woods. He said that all three of them got out and Zimmerman and Hare started looking around at different interesting rocks. Mayo said that he started having foggy thinking and feeling like the other two could read his thoughts. He explained it that he was, quote, thinking funny like they were inviting me to do what I did. Feeling paranoid at the idea of his ride coming to an end and having to find another, he waited until Zimmerman's back was turned and then he hit him over the head with a rock. Paul, having seen this, was terrified as he saw Lawrence fall to the ground dead in front of him. But before he could do anything, Mayo said, quote, sorry, kid, and hit him in the head with a rock as well. He then stole the Toyota Land Cruiser along with Zimmerman's wallet. He said his thinking continued to be foggy as he drove towards Fairbanks. When he got there and ran out of gas, he was then assisted by the policemen. And he was shocked that he wasn't arrested right away. He somehow thought that they would already know about his crimes. In the land cruiser, he had found guns and other possessions of Zimmerman's, which he sold to get cash to get out of the state. On the way south to see his mother in Oregon, he committed a couple of different home burglaries before stealing a car in California and driving to Portland. The resolution to this case is rather anticlimactic. Mayo had a short bench trial in the summer of 72 and was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He was sent to a mental institution in California where he stayed before being released out into the world just a few years later. I had a damn near impossible time finding out what happened to him after that. But I did find someone with the right name and the right age that died the first week of November 2019 in Butte, Montana, at the age of 69. And beyond that, I could find nothing. And I assure you, I really tried. I'm very curious to know if he ended up in Atascadero State Hospital, where Charles Meach ended up, just a few years later. And I'm even more curious to know if they were there at the same time. If you would like to hear more about Charles Meech and how his early release from Atascadero led to a mass murder in Anchorage, check out episode 50. That, my friends, will conclude the story of Lawrence Zimmerman and Paul Hare. I sincerely wish I could have found more information on either of them, but Records that long ago are hard to find on the internet. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I found it to be kind of chilling and also interesting how just these little bits of perfect timing led to his arrest. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.